Hi, this is Giuseppe. Hi, this is Anthony. And you're listening to For the Love of Sophia. A philosophy podcast brought to you by the Public Philosophy Project. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at publicphilproject at gmail.com. Enjoy the ride. Welcome back. Uh, today we are going to talk about, I guess the starting point is, the different ways that we can think about things. Yes. Um, or even better, the different ways in which we should not think about things. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, because when you talk about this, you could talk about ways of thinking that we should avoid because yes. they're, they err in some way, like they're fallacious. Yep. And then there are, there are ways we should think uh, that involve a critical component, a logical yes. component. And I suppose that by the end of this, we'll, we'll go through both of these things. Yep. Um, but maybe it makes sense to start off with the, the error one, so to speak. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, so we're, we're partially going to be talking about the infamous critical thinking <laughs> that everybody's advocating, right? Uh, Wherever you go, if you go to, you know, if you are enrolled in any course that you're taking uh, in a university or in a college, uh, what they will tell you is that whatever that course is, is going to teach you to think critically. And no matter what mm -hmm. the course is, right, you can be taking, a, I don't know, a physical education class. That will also teach <laughs> you to think critically. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, makes its way into all learning outcomes for some reason. And... I think we'll, we'll try to figure out what that is, partially, and how it's related to this other thing that you were mentioning, which is logic. Uh, yeah, and the funny thing is that when critical thinking gets to that level, it becomes a cliché, which, yep. which when something becomes a cliché, it, it is no longer a thing you think critically about, so there's, there's an irony in that. And also, isn't it funny that everyone supposedly does critical thinking but no one Absolutely. actually does critical thinking. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that that is the issue. Um, I think that the issue is exactly that, that we all think that we are thinking critically, right? Nobody goes into something saying, oh, I'm believing or I'm thinking in something that is not true. <laughs> right. Or I, I am thinking about this superficially. Everyone thinks about things that he or she thinks that they're thinking critically. Um but that doesn't seem to be the case. And this is why I was talking about errors, right? What kind of errors do you think kind of lead us to go that direction? What is that we're doing that makes hmm. us think that we think critically instead we're not? That's an interesting question, right? Because the ultimate thing we want to get to is what are the different ways of thinking fallaciously? But now the question is what even motivates in us in the first place to get to that point? Exactly. And... If I had to think about this critically, um, <laughs> I would. Uh, I had. I had to say it. <laughs> I would probably say something like, "People oft well, we don't want to be wrong, right? Yeah. Like we we have this sense of self interest, um, you know, and whether or not it's a true self interest is is yet to be determined. But we have this kind of vague sense of self interest, and I think mm -hmm. that means thinking that." you're always right, like by default. Um, Scary. And, <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, so it seems like that's part of it, but also people tend to overestimate their abilities. And a third thing, which is not unrelated, right? These aren't like mutually exclusive things, is that... I think people have a kind of defense mechanism. Yes. Right? Where, like, to be wrong seems like a really bad, hurtful thing, even if it's about something stupid. And so, because you don't want to get hurt, yes. you do this thing where you're like, no, 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 no,
And it's it's interesting because I think it's Hobbes then in the Leviathan says <clears throat> says something like, well, you know what? Uh, intellect is something that's distributed equally to everybody because everybody, in fact, if you ask, to, if you ask anybody, everybody says that they have more than enough, right? <laughs> it's like his proof is the fact that it's this overestimation of abilities that we all seem to to engage in, right? And which leads, I think this is the connection there, that which leads to this uh, mechanism, this, this mechanism that makes us shut off everything that we don't agree with. Uh, we, we don't want to hear the moment it contradicts somewhat what we, what we believe to begin with. Which is hmm. scary because that means that we are kind of, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're kind of an umbrella, right? We're under an umbrella that we don't, uh, nothing goes by pretty much unless we allow it and allowing that allowing uh, rain to get on us right other ideas or ideas that are against what we think to begin with that's fundamental not just to, for critical thinking of you know to to live uh to live again we're gonna go back to to live a good life right yeah that's what i was gonna say <laughs> i mean i think that's true and it seems to indicate that much like with all of these things uh thinking logically and tr- how would i say this like being attuned to truth or something like that isn't our default state no right because if it was then people wouldn't be the way that they are so apparently yeah yeah so so to do these things it seems like you have to do something extra or different from what you're quote unquote wired to do ordinarily. And that's why when they occur, when a person does it, we praise it and we respect it. And so in that respect, this seems related to virtue, I think. But do you think that it's a matter of when we say when you say we're not wired to do this, do you think it's a different difference in how can we call it, for lack of a better word, in nature or in depth? Meaning that we usually, do you think we usually think all of us are wired to think almost in a shallow mode mm. and then we praise and we admire when somebody goes deeper? Or do you think that this different kind of analysis is instead of a different nature from the analysis, quote unquote, that somebody who doesn't do critical thinking does? Hmm. Um... Because that will be that's a big difference, I think. Yeah, and so I'm kind of um, my initial thought was maybe the scale one, but mm. my full thought here is I am not uh, someone who knows a lot about evolutionary processes. However, it would seem to be the case that we are quote unquote wired, right? And I, and I excuse the anthropomorphism there because I'm not meaning to say that we were wired by something or someone. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have evolved in such a way so as to do things to maintain survival in some like narrow sense, right? Okay. And so I wonder if um, this surface level survival thing is more of a natural inclination than is this higher level like flourishing thing, which goes beyond the basic instincts. Hmm. It's interesting because I think... Um and again, we haven't been doing it in a while. I need to, to bring somebody in that doesn't belong in this conversation necessarily. Mm. Uh, meaning I'm going to quote somebody, uh, at least All an right. idea from somebody. Um, I think that in, with this regard, uh, Rousseau is of use here, right? Uh, if you remember, Rousseau is the guy that says that you know, human nature is good. Uh, so the, the good savage, right? We're good and we are happy and then um, arts and sciences come and civilization come and ruins our life pretty much right and then we become this uh, not so happy uh, individual uh, that goes around and you know that doesn't live happily and uh, it's miserable all the time and so on so I don't agree with him when it comes to actually the the social political stuff but I think Mm -hmm. he's a useful tool here to kind of explain what we're saying I think that somehow instead we are wired to actually 
do this deep uh, scavenging of, of the depth of the mind and this important questions and all the stuff, right? And to critically think. But instead, then, we get wired in, in the true sense of the case that somebody wires us mm-hmm. to do the opposite. And this somebody is the system where we live. We can call it society. We can call it whatever we want. But we are wired not to care about this other stuff. Why do I mm. say that? I say that because I'm thinking of when my kids were younger, much younger, and they were not socialized that much. But not just my kids, all the kids that I've ever known in my life. And the why questions and the how questions. And uh, there's a million things that they want to know. And they're always, and they're not automatic. They always want to know the deep stuff. They're always analyzing things with a depth that then you lose. And you lose it not because you want to lose it, but because you're told that you cannot ask these questions, right? You shouldn't. Um, that this is, you know, you need to concentrate on something else. And that's not maybe, you know, the, the what you're told as a kid is not as blunt, but by all means, all you see is the dismissal of these questions. Sometimes because they're very difficult to answer, right? Uh, like my daughter a long time ago asked me, who created God? And I was like, well... <laughs> I'll talk to you later. Um, but sometimes just because we want our youth to, our youths to, uh, to concentrate on more practical things and mm. how to survive, which nowadays doesn't mean how to escape the saber-toothed tiger, but it means how do I get a job and how do I get a career? So that that's pretty interesting to me interesting to me because I do agree that there's something lost between childhood and adulthood um, with regard to curiosity and kind of mental exploration and it has to do with social structures and practicality and all that good stuff however I'm also not sure that I would claim that there's something intrinsic in us that wants us to do that good thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I, don't, I don't think I'd be willing to say it's entirely the, the social wiring. Um, and I think this maybe has something to do, or, or if it is, that's not unrelated to how we naturally are, right? Because like, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a how we naturally are independent of the social wiring, but uh, let me think about this. But while you think about it, I'll, you know, I'll poke you. Uh, okay. When we, when we think about, you know, the, what we're saying exactly. Do you mean, again, when you say that something is not natural for us, right? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't come natural to us. Uh, then my second question is, then whoever does that, doesn't mean that he has something more or something different within his nature you know, in order to do that. Because, again, if it's not in the nature of an elephant to fly, no elephant can fly, right? Right, of course, of course. So we need to have at least the potentiality to do that, all of us. Yes. And if you agree with that, I think that you're kind of agreeing with me. I'm just saying the potentiality is there and it's shown when we are young and then for whatever reason, again, the reasoning, the reason why this happens might not be the one that I described, but it seems to me that the potentiality is there. We show it when we are young and then somebody kind of put it, puts it back in, right? <laughs> Says, no, don't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we don't do this anymore because we realize that's not convenient for us, but this is still a social thing. This is not uh, a tendency. Again, I haven't, I haven't met yet a child that doesn't have the tendency to go deep. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with all that stuff, especially like I was an only child and I was that kind of person. Um, I think I think all it was was that I was trying not to fall into this like hard dichotomy between the nature and then the nurture. And yeah. I just wanted to be like, no, no, there's an interrelation there. No, so, and I agree with you on that. If So if we agree at base on that... Um, I'm wondering how that affects what we said earlier, right? Because we said when people uh, exhibit certain ways of thinking and behaviors, 
it's praiseworthy and notable. But before we said it was praiseworthy and notable because it went against our natural tendencies. Mm. But now we're saying, oh, no, but it is the natural tendency. It just gets lost. I think it's praiseworthy uh, because because of two reasons. First of all, because it's hard. Yeah. Again, it is natural to to have your core muscles to be well developed and you know and uh, able that you know and uh, in shape. It is natural to do that. In nature, we would do that, but it's really hard to work out, right? And to make sure that those things are there. I'm a example of. <laughs> Not a praiseworthy individual in that department, right? Uh, but um, so it's difficult to do. So this is the praise there already. But there's also the other praise, which is when you do that, this shows that you've been able to go against the grain mm-hmm. of what this, again, apparatus is telling you to do, right? Because not mm. only you're surviving like everybody else, but you're also adding a level of difficulty on top of that, which is mm-hmm. also thinking about stuff uh, critically, whatever that means. Okay, so so you would basically just change the phrase going against natural inclinations to going against, like, the social norm or something what like you're that? Supposed to, what are you supposed to do by, by the standards of the place where we live? Got it. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's hairs to be split, yeah, and maybe I'm going out of my like way always. to do that. Like, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> no, so no. let's say we're on the same page for now. Actually, I think I was the one splitting hairs, uh, but uh, maybe, maybe not. Oh, you're too <laughs> kind. <laughs> um, so I, I have a question, though. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about the praise. We're talking about all this. I'm wondering, though, right? Um, the first question that comes to mind once we have established this baseline, right? Is it, and I always think about this kind of questions, how do we know who's doing that, who's not doing that, right? Because we seem to assume mm-hmm. that we um, applaud and praise the right people. But if history teaches us anything, uh, usually the work of those people that have really thought about stuff deeply and critically uh, it's not appreciated by the contemporaries, right? Absolutely. Thinking of, so- thinking of Socrates as a prime example, right? Yep. Or any other philosopher, <laughs> <laughs> with, with, with few exceptions like Bergson and I don't know who else. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we know, right? Uh, what is doing? Who is mm. doing a good job or, or not? Or, because again, I see people praised, and I want to rip my. <laughs> <laughs> my hair out. No, I'm definitely with you. I think I feel like one of my biggest, I don't know if you want to like call it a pet peeve, because it's probably more like deep existential hatred. But I, I don't like when people <laughs> who are undeserving of praise get praise. Like that always bothered me ever since I was young. Yeah. Um, I think there's, a, there's some criteria. And what? I think when people praise, quote unquote, the wrong people... It's not a matter of, you know, them applying the correct criteria. I think it's a matter of, like, not either not being aware of the criteria or misapplying the criteria. Hmm. Interesting. I, I'm thinking. So, in this specific department, in the critical thinking department, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start. Let's start practical. Okay. Would you Would you say that? Uh, Usually, as a society, let's say, usually as a group, do we have the tendency of praising the right people or the wrong people? In so other I'm going to be, we, I'm gonna be the annoying re- philosopher and say, <laughs> uh, it's, it's probably right with respect to X, but wrong with respect to Y, which is not helpful, but <laughs> I think it's an important thing. Um, because maybe that distinction t- will tell us something. So, yes. So I'll, I'll, give an example. I'll, I'll give an example of what I'm thinking of, right? Usually we have the tendency, um, not everybody probably, but there is the tendency, let's put it this way, to think that the people that do the critical thinking and the people that are really able to do this deep engaging with facts and with you know what's going on are, for example, 
people in academia, right? Mm. And I am not sure that that's true. Definitely, no, definitely not, especially in the current epoch. So that is my issue, right? And these people, though, are labeled as the critical thinkers, right? Like capital C, yeah. Yes, they are the critical thinkers. And I am not sure that they really are. Um, and again, if I truly think about the major critical thinkers in, in the history of our discipline, and I know there's some that were conform, right? But the majority of them were not part of the, what the establishment will call critical thinkers with the, the, the one that, you know, thinking of Nietzsche, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely not aligned. Uh, Socrates got killed. Um, Erasmus, uh, I don't know. There's like millions of them. Right. And it seems like that we constantly, throughout the history of humanity, has made this mistake of assigning the role of critical thinkers with the capital C to people that are not really doing that. They're just spewing what it seems to be, uh, I don't know, important and deep, what instead it's just framing with in nice words really the spirit of the of the majority or of the one with the means of power depending which school you look at yeah i mean there's definitely truth to that and i feel like even if you think at the word critic look at the word critical i think it's tough because it has this connotation um of like anti x right Mm -hmm. critical means not the dominant And I don't think that should be inherent in the word because I think sometimes critical thinking means being an iconoclast. But I think sometimes critical thinking means recognizing when traditionally held belief systems are good. So I feel like like, um, this pro or anti thing is maybe unwarranted because it's it's beyond even those two things. and with regard to this idea of assigning people the, the role or the title of critical thinkers, I mean, that seems to be an issue of conflating critical thinking with upholding a particular system. And you say, mm-hmm. like, oh, if you uphold the system, that is critical thinking. And, I mean, I, that's certainly not the case. You're just preserving the system. Um, Absolutely. So I think the question becomes, like, well, like, what is the intersection? Like, like, what element of system preservation meets what element of iconoclasticism equals critical thinking? And I feel like probably to talk about this, we have to start in simpler chunks. And, and mm-hmm. start to think about, like, all right, well, what are some basic characteristics of critical thinking, which also includes what are some basic characteristics of fallacious thinking? And I think right off the bat, one that we uncovered already, without mm-hmm. saying it out loud, is this idea of appealing to authority for the sake of That's, authority. Yeah. yeah. I was about to say, um, to be back on what you were saying, and then we'll go to, to, to the the fallacious thinking proper. Um, I think that uh, we need to, in order to figure out, again, what brings these two dimensions together, right? Uh, we definitely need to kind of spell out as much as we can those rules for thinking well that will lead us eventually, eventually to the critical thinking. I'm thinking Descartes, right? The rules mm. uh, for the direction of the mind. Mm-hmm. Or the intellect, not the mind. And one way of doing this is uncovering fallacious thinking. Uh, and definitely this appeal to authority is one where um, this idea that, again, we have uncovered of just appealing to someone's authority in order to make our argument stronger, right? This idea that what I say is true or correct because whatever more or less shared authority says so right yeah uh this idea that uh that we um that we need 
to, um, again, that we need uh, somewhat to to corroborate our our opinion with someone else. So, well, for example, I don't know if you were a Catholic, you say, oh, what I say is right because the Pope says so. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you are part of a political party, you will say, oh, my idea is right because the political leader says so, um, and so on. And obviously, this is fallacious in so many ways. Yes. Uh, and dangerous as well, right? So I think what you're saying is definitely true. And to kind of unpack that a little bit more, um, you know, one question would be, why exactly do we have a tendency to do that? And then a related question would be, well, what exactly is wrong about it? And to answer the first question, I think the reason we have a tendency to do that is because a lot of the time there exist qualified authorities on a specific topic. And the reason these people are authority figures is precisely because they're good at the thing. And if they're good at the thing, you want to trust their belief. And I think, I don't know, a good example about this would be like doctors, right? Or, or, or you trust, um, a, a sports player to tell you about sports or something like that. Like it makes mm-hmm. sense, right? They're qualified because they're right most, if not all of the time in the topic. And I think something incorrect that happens, there's a couple of things, is that we make this leap to say, oh, well, therefore all authority is qualified by definition. And that's certainly not true. Yeah. Um, and then also we then think that the reason an authority is qualified, um, an authority is true is not because they're qualified, but merely because they're an authority. Yes. And I think that's the true appeal to authority, which is not, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm appealing to someone's expertise, but it's like, this person has a capital letter in their title. Therefore, everything they say is true. Yeah. Yeah. I think that to add to what you're saying, um, we, I will add two reasons why we do it. To, to, to what you just said. The first one is literally the extension of what you said. I think that the reason why we do it is also because we're conditioned to do that. Mm. Uh, and we're conditioned to do that throughout our life. Again, I'm going to take children's uh, in consideration and yeah. schooling is what makes you think that. Uh, in school, you're, you're, you learn, aside from math and sciences and a few other things, you learn just to do what you're told. To be seated to when somebody talks and and I think that some of us interiorize this more than others, and that leads to issues right that leads to the fact that now whoever is standing up while I'm sitting down, that is an authority figure, and I'll follow it no matter what because that's what I'm supposed to do. I have learned to do that, and the other one the other thing that I want to add to to what you just said, there is an element of I think. Um, and I am culpable of it as well. I think all of our us. Uh, there's an element of laziness that goes with it. Mm. It is easier to appeal to authority than doing your own reasoning, right? Yes. Because all of a sudden, uh, even with doctors, right? I go to the doctor. Uh, the doctor knows what he's doing, so I don't need to figure out by myself why I have what I have, right? Mm-hmm. Um or it's easier for me to be uh, to be just munching on somebody's ideas uh, instead of coming up with my own idea. Mm-hmm. Um, think of the, all instances of plagiarism, right? Oh, uh, that you go through. Uh, um, when, Is it when that we, time of the semester yet? No, no, not yet. Uh, well, it's always the time of the semester. But, um, but I'm saying, uh, why is plagiarism easier than writing a paper it's not just the time but it's just you're you're using somebody else's idea because it's there already you don't need to think you don't need to do anything i mean i'm assuming that some of the students have plagiarized actually read this idea of these people and be like hmm that's cool that would be cool if i thought about that let me put it and present it as mine right <laughs> yeah um which is the the 
the good bad plagiarism. Then there's the bad bad plagiarism, which is people that just copy under a title that seems resembling the title of whatever you, you're of supposed course, to write. Of course, just copy and paste. But the point is, it's laziness. There's an element of laziness in there as well. I think. I think you're absolutely right. And what you're saying is basically exactly what Kant says in the beginning of What is Enlightenment, where he says, you know, enlightenment, let me see if I remember this, is, is man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. Correct. And so basically what he means by this is you have, like, certain people have this inability to use their own understanding because they're lazy or because they're afraid. Mm-hmm. And the laziness is like, well, if I don't have to put myself out there, if I don't have to, well, that's, I guess that's more fear. Uh, but the laziness is, if I don't have to do work, I'm not going to do work. I'm going to substitute exactly. myself with this other person. So it's easier. And then the exactly. fear is like, well, I'm not going to put myself out there because if I put myself out there and then that thing gets criticized, like, oh, that's going to hurt me, right? So there's this... Um, yeah again, defense mechanism aspect to it. And what I was noticing is, as you were talking and I'm talking, is in a, in a weird way, it seems like the bad thing about authority in this respect is the bad thing about cliches, right? Because when you use the cliche, you use it as a kind of um, authority that you don't have to think about that's supposed to convey something merely by the fact that it is like uh, authoritative or platitudinous or something like that. Absolutely. And I think it's, that's part of it. I mean, authority can be a person, can be a text, can be, meaning a, a book, right? Can be, can be a cliche, right? Uh, as you, you appeal to that as the easiest way to, to get out of thinking again. So this, it seems like that this appeal to authority is not just a, the wrong way of thinking it's a way of not thinking it seems like yeah that makes sense um so so that would be one thing not to do if you're critically thinking <laughs> do not appeal to authority because otherwise not only you're not thinking critically you're probably not thinking at all correct definitely definitely and and this doesn't mean always go against authority as a default either, right? <laughs> of course. Well, that would be uh, appealing to the principle of non-authority as an authority. So Ex- exactly. That so would be the same thing. I, there's this idea of like... I mean, we can, we can keep talking about uh, oops, authority forever, but maybe, maybe we should continue. <laughs> um, yeah. So related to this, I think related to the idea that we believe authority figures merely because they're authority figures is this idea of like well i can't imagine that they would be wrong i can't imagine that they would lie to me right and there's this idea of what you would call uh, appealing to incredulity right like i can't Mm -hmm. imagine it easily in my conceptual framework therefore it must not be the case yeah and that's that this kind of fallacious reasoning uh I think it stems from from a good quality that we have, actually, which is trustworthiness, right? We trust that things will happen um, in a certain way. And again, in a sense, we are this time really conditioned without knowing it uh, to think that things works this, work this way. I'm thinking specifically about the fact that we have this idea uh, that comes probably from from the ancients and it's make it it's make it into our minds almost in a uh, a very sneaky way that's this idea if that you know um i think was was it occam i think that it would say that in nature the easy uh, the the easier way we always need to believe that nature does things the easier way so to speak right yes uh there's always the there is the easy way that is the the right way. Uh, whenever we're overcomplicating it, this us kind of projecting on that, and I think this is kind of where this comes from. Uh, why would I doubt that this person? I cannot believe that, right? It's easier to believe. Uh, and again, maybe there's a little bit of that laziness of which we were talking about before in there as well. But there's also this idea that I am, I'm just trusting you. I am being, you know 
vulnerable mm -hmm. to, to your lies. And I do not want to think, I, don't wanna, I do not want to um, inquire anymore um, on whatever topic you're discussing. Yeah, and similarly, there's this idea of, well, if I didn't see it happen yet, then it's not going to happen, right? Because I think appealing to in incredulity is like a subcategory of something we would say is appealing to ignorance. Like, I don't have the knowledge of this thing, uh, therefore it is not a thing. And, and this could go wrong because, you know, if you lived in a time like in the 1800s before women could vote and you were like, well, women are never going to vote because they haven't voted up until this point, right? You would be wrong. Mm -hmm. you, you would be, it's kind of like, it's also related, I think, to this idea that, you know, the absence of evidence is not the same thing as, as the evidence of the absence, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's interesting because it seems that, um, and what I'm about to say has no political mean at all. Okay. Uh, no political meaning at all. Um, I think this is a, almost a principle of, con of conservation that you're describing, right? Mm. This is the way people that reason that way want and tend to conserve whatever opinion or whatever status quo it's in place by saying that, right? Um, at the end of the day, it means, as you're saying, well, I've never seen it, then it shouldn't be. Uh, then it doesn't exist, and probably it shouldn't even be. That's the that's the next logical consequence, con, you know, consequence I would say. And if that's the case, obviously the result is keeping things the way they are indefinitely, mm -hmm. uh, which puts you in a bad position. Why is that bad? Because it puts you in a bad position. First of all, on not even thinking of the possibility of the way things might be, and puts you in the position of again stagnating in whatever mental state you are hmm i mean as as you're saying this i'm kind of trying to figure out if there's a trend and it seems like if this preservation of the status quo thing is true then all of these would stem from a fear of like the other right or novelty or difference or something like that it might very well be because from there uh, you know, the jump is a really small one to creating these bubbles mm -hmm. or chambers where you just never get out of and you surround yourself of people that kind of think of what you think and you literally, uh, you know, block out or block out as one case or ignore another case, whatever is out of this, of this chamber or out of this bubble, right? Um, you can simply never encounter somebody that thinks any different from you and you purposely surround yourself with that or you simply reject whatever comes from something different. So I, that has to be some fear of the other, of the diverse or well, whatever. And, and now you're bringing in confirmation bias, right? This mm -hmm. idea that I'm only going to pay attention to the things that support uh, what I already think and I'm going to pretend that nothing else exists because I have this belief that I am God and there is nothing else except what I'm saying right now. Yeah, which is, which is very dangerous. Probably one of, the, one of the most dangerous of the one that we have, that we have discussed up to now. Um, and it's dangerous on multiple levels. First of all, because again, this, uh, it's dangerous for yourself. You become a god, right? I've never been wrong, and only the only thing that I'll do is I'll always be right. And it's funny. It's like sometimes is uh, it just doesn't make any sense if you break it down, right? People that work with confirmation bias are the kind of people that, uh, and of course, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make an example that might be funny, uh, which is actually not my example, but Wittgenstein example. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the people that, 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 that do this are kind of people that will take the New York Times, right? Read the headlines of the New York Times, <laughs> and the headlines kind of says what they say. Yeah. And then they say, you see? You see what it's saying? <laughs> right, right. But they put it down. They take another copy of the same New York Times and go again, you see? You see what they say? And that's two of them. <laughs> and that's three of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it is this this weird situation when you keep on you keep on using pretty much uh, the same item, decline differently, mm -hmm. 
and uses as multiple instances of so you pretty much you're creating evidence you're saying well it's not just it's not just coincidental it's not just uh, um anecdotal i have multiple evidence of say i have 100 copies of the yeah. new york times <laughs> from august 14 that say that right and, you know it seems funny and of course when wittgenstein uh thought of this example um it was kind of a mockery. But if you think about it today with social media, mm-hmm. where people go and look at that specific piece of information and they go to five different websites and they don't realize that these five different websites are all reporting exactly the same piece of information. But because what's on top, it's different. They think that they have five different sources now. One is still the same source. Yeah, I, w- I was just kind of thinking about the contemporary version of this. Is like you read an article, I don't know, in the New York Times, and it cites something in the Washington Post. And then, like, you go into the Washington Post, and it cites some other uh, media outlet that's saying the same thing, and or and or ultimately goes back to the time, the New York Times, or something. And it's like it's this weird. Um, closed circuit of things appealing to each other like it's this weird circular uh evidentiary structure which isn't actually anything other than confirmation bias because you're just pointing this person agrees with me that person agrees with me this so it's this weird mexican standoff of agreeance (laughs) that's used to justify things right it's like the end of reservoir dogs but with newspapers yeah, and I'm also thinking of, you know, I'm thinking of, oh, and again, the name dropping today is getting annoying, I guess, but I'm thinking of Frege, right? And the reference stuff. Mm. It's like people don't realize that the morning star and the night star is the same star. Mm. They're not realizing that they're calling two different things the same thing. And sometimes it's unintentional, but sometimes it is intentional. And again, but this is a bad way of proceeding when looking for evidence, when trying to think critically. In the meanwhile, this is probably the first, I'm thinking that this fallacious way of thinking, this, this confirmation bias, I think that this is actually the first concrete one that hmm. we have discussed. Because, and this is the one that you can say, well, in order to avoid that, try to find real different sources for example right but i was thinking when it comes to authority especially with the with the caveat that we made in the beginning that there's good authority and bad authority right how do you so if i have to teach if i wanted to say i become the wisest man in the world okay (laughs) and and there are the masses coming to me and be like please giuseppe please (laughs) teach us how to recognize a good authority from a bad authority. Uh-huh. Or please us, what was the second one that we discussed again? Uh, please teach us, uh, you know, how to distinguish good reasoning from bad reasoning mm-hmm. from this other perspective. What do you tell them? Uh, how, do they, how do I recognize good authority from bad authority? Because I can say, mm. for example, um, um, I, I'm trying to avoid politics, but it's the easiest one, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the... the um, I don't know, this, uh, this man over here, which is uh, the head of this party, says that this is the right thing to do. And I kind of, you know, I think he's a good authority because he knows what he's talking about. He must know because he's been in politics for many years and he dealt with, uh, you know, head of states everywhere. And uh, while he was doing this, good things were happening. So I should believe this person because he's a good authority. And I have... I have no knowledge on politics, so I need to start somewhere. So why don't I, the same way I appeal to the gastroenterology when, when my stomach is not doing well, mm-hmm. I'll do that with politics with this guy. And then the other person uh, coming from the different party would say, no, you're wrong. He's not a good authority. <laughs> uh, the other guy is the good authority because such and such and such. And, you know, the fact that he's been in politics for so long, actually, that's bad. Uh, and and pretty much you have our picture of yeah, our yeah. society today, right? And but how do you make this difference? What what? Again, I'm always trying to find this demarcation point, right? Yeah. Uh, but is there? Do you think? 
is there a way in which we could kind of address this? Um, is there something that our discipline can do to help people at least navigate uh, these rough waters? I'm thinking of a few different things. I think the answer is yes. One of the things I'm thinking of is the most basic one. Check to see if their claims correspond to reality. That's like step one, <laughs> right? Are they making true claims? And when you're doing that, I mean, use a plethora of so like look at different types of sources, but also use your own eyes, right? Like like use everything you got. Um, another thing to look at is where their interests lie. Like like who is, who are they trying to serve and who is being served by the thing they're proposing? Um, hmm. Something else I'm wondering is what would be like would this it's kind of a character thing like would this person tell the truth even if it meant that it damaged their status because because if the answer to that's no then probably there's some trust issues and you should be skeptical whereas if you have someone that when when it comes down to the wire is willing to speak out even when it's not popular even when it hurts them then i think you have something to work with Hmm. Um, I'm thinking that doctors then are not really good. <laughs> well, another another thing I'm thinking of is look at someone's history, right? Like, ha- have they been consistent? Have they changed? Mm. If they changed, was it an authentic change or was it because of some weird change in lobbying or because, oh, now this is popular, so they're saying a different thing? So, yeah, so truth, interest, history, consistency the cost of what they're saying, these seem to be all relevant factors. Absolutely. Um, again, I'm going to be the annoying philosopher here. Mm-hmm. And all of these things that we just mentioned, which I agree with, this is the things that you should do, definitely. But none of this is easy to do. No, of course <laughs> not. Of course not. Not even the one check if what they're saying corresponds to reality. Yeah. Not even that simple one. Um, because depending on the lens that you use, you might think that it does. Of course, right? And even when uh, you go to check, the world could be such that the evidentiary structures are just self-referential, like we're saying. So it's like, how do you yeah. get to the thing? Yes. And I think, so I agree with all you said, all those things are tools that you should use. But I think that there is, uh, which is implicit, I think, in what you're saying, right? Um, there is an implicit... Um, intention that needs to be within your head in order for you to do all these things. And this implicit intention needs to be the one to find what the truth is, Mm -hmm. to find what is real, what is right, or depending on whatever you're you're trying to do your critical thinking on. Um, You need to be willing to do that even if that hurts your pride. Yes. Even if at the end of that process you find out that you made a mistake or that you did something stupid or that your opinion wasn't exactly the most truthful opinion that there was. Mm-hmm. If that's missing, none of that process that you describe can work because you will not do that. You will, again, try to confirm your, your bias instead of looking for what is right. That, that seems to be true. Um, and in addition, what about this idea that you know, there's some people that do this thing where they say, um, don't do as I do, right? Do as I say. So I think probably you should consider whether someone is leading by example, whether they're living according to the thing that they're preaching. And I don't mean to say that, you know, whenever someone doesn't live up to principles they're talking about you should automatically discard them but i am saying if a person very clearly doesn't ever um at least try earnestly to live up to those principles then there's probably something wrong there because they may have ulterior motives um or some other stuff going on there and i think that one caveat to that is and i know that you don't mean that at all but we had to make sure not to confuse that with one of the fallacies with the, or the informal ones with, you know, uh, 
the kind of denying what somebody's saying because of their character, right? Right, right. So we want to make sure that we're saying, oh, I shouldn't listen to Professor Seeley's uh, opinion. Uh, we shouldn't listen to Anthony's opinion because about philosophy because he's a terrible, I don't know, uh, he's horrible when he does laundry. And so yeah. you're going you're gonna to talk to him because he doesn't know how to do laundry, so don't listen to him at all. Or uh, more relevantly, right, you shouldn't listen to such and such opinion Again, regarding some aspect of critical thinking that you might be analyzing, because this person cheated on his wife, or because yes. this person, uh, you know, has stolen from somebody else. Well, I think that there's still bad people can say good things. <laughs> I think you're right. Um, and on a side note, there is like a baby <laughs> screaming beneath me right really? now. There's just people hammering and a screaming oh, baby, boy. and I hope they're not hammering the baby. Um, oh boy! I'm not listening. I'm not, I'm not hearing any of this. Actually, that's good. That's good. But um, <laughs> I think this stuff about character is important because we're ultimately getting to this idea of, of what we would call ad hominem, and I'm thinking maybe this is a good point to pause and to pick up in the next episode uh, with this conversation about the extent to which character judgment is warranted. I guess. Yeah, I think that that's uh, that's a great idea, a great starting point, and I think that in the next part we probably should start thinking of also why people are seduced by mm. by this kind of stuff and why people instead seems to fall for for easy seducing sometimes not even easy but just seducing ideas that that you know go against all those principles that we're enumerating that sounds good to me all right see you in a bit see ya mm-hmm.